but right here you see what Ric Flair and what kind of man he is. Walt McDaniel, you got to deal with Ric Flair. You got to deal with Dusty Rhodes. You got the two best right there, Daddy. So let's take Walt McDaniel. Let's take Tully Blanchard. Let's put them in a cage and let me and Ric Flair just get down to kicking their booties somewhere in this country. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. Episode 102 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host, Peter Winson, and today I'll be covering the last 45 minutes of the movie Saturday Night Fever. We're going to play on the Verrazano Bridge. Actually, no, none of that. It is NWA Worldwide from March 23rd, 1985, when you had that disco-y theme song that I obviously enjoy very much. I, I have not covered any JCP shows in quite a while. It's been like three and a half, four months. I look through the list of shows that I do, and I, I know I do WWF about every other week, and I've done more of them recently. So when I go that long, it's like, okay, time to jump back. I had some things marked from March of 1985 for NWA Worldwide. So there's available footage out there. And plus, this promotion is really good from the beginning of 1985 all the way up through the middle of 1987, around around the bash time with War Games. And as you get closer to Starcade, you can see definite signs of slippage, like when, well, when Rick Rude leaves in the middle of the year to go to the WWF when he is the tag team champion. That is certainly a red flag. But before I get into the show, let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greetingsvalentown at gmail.com. Facebook.com slash greetings from Allentown. Give me a follow on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod. That is at GF Allentown Pod. You may be listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. More on Pro Wrestling Only coming up a little bit later. So this past weekend, something really great happened. And it was something that I thought I would never that that was never going to happen again. And I was so thrilled. When it actually occurred and everything just kind of went right. And sure, it was, it's something that considered mundane and boring by pretty much all bystanders of it. And of course, what I'm talking about is me fixing the starter recoil on my snowblower. Because that snowblower, when we have a snow event in this house, it becomes the most important entity that is here. Given what my driveway is with the hill and it being shaped like a three-dimensional seven and all that stuff, it becomes more important than me, becomes more important than my wife, becomes more important than the cat, although my wife said the snowblower is, uh, is more important than the cat anyway. But then again, the, the cat's food costs like an incredible amount of money because of her thyroid condition, so 
I don't know, a lot of money's been sunk into her over time. But, yeah, so the snowblower is repaired, and I'm always happy when I'm able to actually repair something like that because I, I, I'm, I'm not good at that sort of thing. I, I know, I kind of know my limitations. So when, it, when I get it done in that regard, and I could have just kept using the electric starter, but I, what if the power goes out? Then I would have been completely screwed, and I would have been hand-shoveling, and then I would probably die, and then no more podcasts or anything like that. Okay, so you're probably thinking, oh, I thought you were going to mention something else from the weekend. And yeah, there was a huge victory, in case you didn't see it, on national television. After another event that occurred last year, I was pretty sure I was never going to see anything like this happen again. It was a kind of a boring game and, you know, just really kind of dull at certain points. But in the end, they came up with a very unexpected victory. And of course, I'm talking about the Boston Bruins defeating the Washington Capitals in Washington for the first time in five years that they beat that team. They lost 14 straight to the Capitals and they prevail one to nothing. I mean, they lost 7 nothing to the Capitals in the season opener when the Caps raised their Stanley Cup banner from last year. So I thought it was never going to happen for the Bruins against that team again. And yeah, the Patriots defeated the Rams in Super Bowl 53 by a score of 13-3. to At which point, during the game, I was reciting hockey games that I've attended that were higher scoring than that game. But it was a welcome change. You know, sometimes you're going to get 41-33, and sometimes you're going to get 13-3. It's a nice reminder to everybody that, yeah, you're allowed to play defense in football as well, especially, you know, like college football where you get stupid final scores of 76 to 73 in three overtimes because of their stupid system where teams score like 45 points in overtime and like inflates the entire thing. Despite it being low scoring, the Patriots were able to move the ball at times when it sort of became like a field position game. A couple of times with the punting inside the 50-yard line, which you'd only do if the game has kind of been established that way. At one point, we were wondering if the punter was going to be the MVP of the Super Bowl, because that would have been bizarre. That would have been almost as good as if the Atlanta Patriots Super Bowl had ended with a fair catch kick, had that final punt by Atlanta been fielded at, say, the 50. I think the Patriots would have tried that. I was very obsessed with that at the time. So in watching the game... It's 3-3, and I got the same crew at my house that I've had for the last few Super Bowls that we've been privileged enough to watch the Patriots play in. (laughs) When they got the ball with about nine minutes left, I decided to go to the jinx bag. Now you're wondering, what the hell is a jinx bag, and how does it work? Well, years ago, my wife's aunt, who works at the NFL, gave me a strange piece of merchandise, which was a Super Bowl forty duffel bag. And I like this duffel bag to travel with because there's a lot of secret compartments and stuff, you know, for like hiding your razor, hiding it too well where the point where you forget where it is and then you end up buying a disposable razor and then you end up blading yourself and then you end up looking like, you know, Wahoo McDaniel or something like that. Uh, no, I'm not shaving my forehead or anything like that. I- I'm just kind of making a point. Anyway, jinx bag. So when the Patriots got the ball back for that drive, I said, brought up the jinx bag, placed it in front of the TV, as I had done in Super Bowl 49 with the Patriots down by 10, and as I had done in Super Bowl 51 when the Patriots were down 28-9 to at that point is when the jinx bag 
made its appearance. Yes, it came out for the Eagles game, but I, I think I went to it a little too early for that one, so it kind of lost its impact. I threw the bag down, gave it a little rub, and then the Patriots scored the only touchdown of the game on that drive, and it was left there for the rest of the game. And I'm glad that my cat did not jump in the bag as she usually does if I leave you know, something like that on the floor. She just kind of you know, ignored it and walked around it, slept upstairs or whatever. Very good for when we had guests over. So they end up winning the game 13-3, to which the 48th game in NFL history that ended 13-3, to everybody. So don't act like this is completely out of line. However, this was the first game to finish with that final score since the 2008 season. And it is the first time the Patriots won a game by a score of 13-3 to since December 24th, 1994 against the Chicago Bears at Soldier Field, a game that I remember very well because it was the first playoff berth that the Patriots clinched after Bob Kraft had purchased the team. But one more thing in the game, I remember like the second or third play that the Patriots ran in the game was actually a jet sweep to Cordero Patterson, which picked up seven yards, and I got very excited because I thought that they were going to do more and more of those since that play was successful. <laughs> and they never really went back to it. They did throw one bubble screen at some point, but... That was one of the props that I hit on. The total rushing and receiving yards by Cordero Patterson went over 18 and a half. Of course, it was only 21. I'm glad that I went over with the Rob Gronkowski receptions as he got six for 87 yards and then a few others where I was wrong. There was only two players with a passing attempt, although the Rams, <laughs> at some points, they, they I don't even know who their backup was, but I felt like he could have done better than Jared Goff at, at times, and total QB sacks by both teams, it ended up being five, and I had the under three and a half, figuring, well, the offensive line on conference championship teams do tend to be pretty good, so you're not going to have a lot of that. So yes, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you to anybody who reached out and said congratulations to this old Patriots <laughs> I I know it's I'm trying not to be obnoxious about it. I feel lucky that I've been able to watch this team over the last 18 years. The way that I've watched the Patriots over the last say 10 years or so, ever since he hurt his knee in the season opener of the 2008 season is more out of appreciation for Tom Brady and you know just kind of watching his game by game because when you have an athlete who performs at such a high level, granted this game was not the best one he's ever played, certainly. You you want to experience that week-to-week week and not take it for granted. I mean, I just think back to if I was an if I was older in the 1980s, being able to watch Larry Bird every single night and see him do the things that he did, that would have been friggin' awesome. So when you have an athlete like that around who is in your city or just plays for your team, just appreciate it while he's there. Because you never know when everything's going to fall apart and your team's going to finish 47 and 115. That's my advice to you. So here we are, March of 1985. And if you give that month and year to a wrestling fan, the first thing you're going to think of, obviously, is WrestleMania. Because WWE exists, they write the history. So that kind of dominates the discussion of that particular time period. But there's also a lot going on in Jim Crockett promotions in the background of all that. 
It's during this month that JCP takes the steps to get on to TBS starting, I believe, in April, where they swoop in and buy the 605 time slot from the WWF, where they were just kind of flailing away. By this point, they're running studio matches in Atlanta upon the request of, I believe, Ted Turner himself, which led to the outstanding visual of Gorilla Monsoon calling matches in Techwood Studio. I know that there are a few videos out there of that, and maybe at some point I'll I'll get to one of those episodes just because of how weird it is. And this is actually an example of JCP buying something where it actually worked for them to spend the million dollars or whatever it was, because that time slot almost certainly would have gone to Mid-South. Because with the WWF failing on TBS, there are two other wrestling promotions out there that were on the channel. Championship Wrestling from Georgia, the Ole Anderson kind of reboot of the Georgia Championship Wrestling promotion. Not something I think that was strong enough to maybe sort of carry nationally if you're going to make it like the one promotion that's on that channel. Mid-South had a much better shot at it. And they got aced out of it by JCP buying the time slot and then partnering up with Championship Wrestling from Georgia. And this is where you start seeing Crockett going into the Omni in Atlanta where it becomes a much bigger territory. And at the same time, too, it hurt Mid-South because this limited their reach and they'd start running into financial issues a couple of years down the line. Partly due to forces beyond their control, oil markets, stuff like that, in the area of the country where they operated. So for this, March 85, the crowds are very hot, but it's quite different for JCP. Because it is a time period where things are slightly different than what they would eventually evolve into and become the norm around there. Yes, Arn Anderson is there now. He debuts in March of 1985. And he's a very fresh face, but he's not paired up with anybody. He's sort of almost like a Bad News Brown type loner where he talks about not having any friends and then eventually goes into saying that Oli is going to be here soon, which I think is in reference to Oli Oli Anderson obviously coming in and forming the team. And he's running Georgia. And eventually, like I said, Crockett and Georgia would sort of team up in that way and become one bigger territory. Flair, Ric Flair, is the NWA champion, but he is not a heel. He is a babyface feuding with heel Wahoo McDaniel. By the way, when I mention Wahoo as the great Native American chief, he does not qualify for my version of the village people, because if I were to refer to him as such, I would be terrified that Wahoo will rise from the dead and just chop the shit out of me, and just leave me with welts. So he is just kind of, you know, kept away from all that. And Flair's got another thing that's brewing as well, which is a new face to the territory. Nature boy Buddy Landell has come in, and is taking shots at Slick Rick, calling himself the real nature boy, and all that sort of stuff. And Landell has a manager by the name of J.J. Dillon, is opposing Flair. So it's very strange from that perspective. Also, Ric Flair is in a little bit of a feud with Tully Blanchard, although eventually Tully, who was the NWA World Television Champion, which we'll get to momentarily, more in a feud with the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, as it should be, 
since Dusty and Telly are the best opponents chemistry-wise for each other. Yes, they did lose Ricky Steamboat to the WWF shortly before the first WrestleMania, and part of that is because of Dusty Rhodes maybe being afraid of Steamboat's popularity and also being somebody that he couldn't necessarily control as much as somebody else. So Steamboat goes, and he's replaced as that second babyface by Magnum T.A., who is going up against Wahoo McDaniel for the United States heavyweight title, something that he would eventually win and then have his whole thing with Tully culminating in the cage match at Starcade at the very end of this year. And this might be the best for everybody involved, where Magnum gets elevated to that level. Of course, he has the car accident in October of 1986. But Steamboat gets to go to the WWF, make a lot of money, become, you know, famous, rich on a national stage, and Magnum gets a little bit of a bump as well. And of course, how could I possibly forget the never-ending war that is in, I want to say, year number three at this point, between the Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant, and Paul Jones. There have not been as many people turning on Jimmy Valiant at this point, but he did lose his beard to Paul Jones' army. It's not quite like when he lost his ponytail to... (laughs) Pez Watley and his brainwashed whatever in 86, but that is going on, and on this show we are actually going to see Jimmy Valiant versus superstar Billy Graham in the work great classic of 1985, (laughs) also on this show we do see Arn Anderson in action, and the sort of makeshift tag team of Magnum TA, want to get him out there. Teaming with the former NWA World Tag Team Champion, Manny Fernandez, the Raging Bull, he had just lost those titles where he was teamed with Dusty Rhodes to the Russians. And by Russians, I mean Ivan Koloff, Crusher Khrushchev, and Nikita Koloff. They are on the show as well as the new tag team champions, kind of operating in that three-man, two-man unit, the Freebird rule being evoked in Jim Crockett Promotions. And because I guess we're just truly blessed, we get a Pez Watley match, and he's taking on Hollywood John Tatum in the opening bout. And throughout, we're going to get a bunch of promos and things that are going on, a couple from Tully Blanchard himself, and then another one, a dual promo with Nature Boy Ric Flair and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes together, only months after their Starcade 1984 in the controversial ending with Joe Frazier, and all of that. So without any further ado, it is episode 102, so it's time to cue up a sports moment from the year 2002. Stephen Pete just jumped on. They had a mini line change, and Pete right up with Stock at the blue line, and they're talking about it. I had things a little backwards back in 2002 because I was living in Washington, D.C. 
and actually had season tickets to Capitals games because for some reason, even though I had no money, I felt like going to hockey games was part of my identity. So I spent $560 on hockey tickets. When I came back to Boston for that game between the Bruins and the Capitals, which was on, I think, January 5th, and it was 6-3 in the second period. It was a wild game. And yes, the fight between P.J. Stock and Stephen Pete, where they're just throwing punches, not playing much in the way of defense in terms of trying to block or tie the other guy up. They had a series of three fights over the calendar year 2002, I want to say. Now, I must confess that at the time, I loved Stephen Pete. He was such a cult hero in Washington, but it also kind of goes into my complicated feelings about fighting in the NHL, which is way down from where it was because of rule changes have put a greater emphasis on speed. The guys who fight aren't the guys who are fast, so you just don't see as much of it. But Stephen Pete, unfortunately, these days is homeless and living on the streets, I think, of British Columbia, estranged from his family. He pleaded guilty to some sort of arson charge a couple of years ago. I forget the details of it. My heart kind of breaks for him because I I met him at a team event before that season, so it would have been in 2001. And I remember going up to him because he scored in a preseason game, you know, kind of unexpectedly. And I think the Caps had lost like five to one. So I went up to him I'm like, Steve, I love your game. I hope I hope you make the team. Blah blah blah. I like, thank you for really giving a crap because most guys don't give a crap in the preseason. He's like. Uh, thanks a lot. I, uh, appreciate it. I have a lot of those kind of interactions with athletes and celebrities. So I really hope that he finds peace at some point down the road because it's been a lot of issues with guys who were enforcers in the NHL, even guys who were only there for a handful of years like Stephen Pete. So we start out the NWA Worldwide show with stills of the sometimes forgotten Silver Star 85. In fact, well, I'm not even going to call it forgotten because I didn't even know about this until I watched the March TV. The Silver Star 85 was a closed-circuit show that they showed around the territory held in Greensboro on March 16th. And it was in part to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Greensboro Coliseum but also to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Jim Crockett Promotions, which is a little bit of fudging the numbers, I'm going to say. It's sort of like the old WWF thing when they would start their shows and say for over 50 years back in 1996, even though they didn't break off technically until 1963. So who knows what they were going. However, that same night that that's going on in Greensboro, this this big event that's on closed circuit, over in Charlotte, North Carolina, the Crockett-owned minor league ballpark, there was a fire, and speaking of arson, some high school kids lit the stadium on fire, went up in flames shortly before the baseball season was to begin. I guess there was a high school game there during the day. So the Charlotte O's, the minor league team, AA affiliate of the Baltimore Orioles, did not have a stadium for what turned out to be a couple of years. And the Crockett's ended up selling the team, the minor league team, to George Shin in 1987. It would be the worst fire in the Orioles organization since the major league team at the 2018 level. Just the whole team was, you know, just a complete dumpster fire the entire season is what I'm trying to say. 
So kind of a lot going on for that one day. And as they're showing stills, highlights, Dusty winning the NWA television title off Tully Blanchard after a very long title reign, in fact, the longest title reign in history, they are playing that other part of the Midnight Express theme that you don't necessarily hear when the Midnights would come to the ring. And I thought, hmm, it's fascinating that they'd be playing this because the Midnight Express themselves, those guys don't arrive until the end of June of 85 because they are still in world class. See the still of Baby Doll in the cage, like I said, Dusty and Tully. And the finish to that match that you see is Tully getting tossed into a chair being held up by Wahoo McDaniel on the ring apron. So... Rather interesting that we're showing only the stills of this event, even though it's not like a pay-per-view thing and there's some sort of weird rules behind that. So we go right in to our opening match in one of the patron saints of Greetings from Allentown. Mr. Pez Watley is taking on Hollywood John Tatum. And Tatum is a rather interesting character in the history of wrestling because when you say his name, I think of him for being with young Missy Hyatt. And I have to admit, I'm a little bit jealous of all that. However, at the same time, Tatum is a bit of a jobber here early in his career. And I'm assuming that while Missy Hyatt was with young John Tatum, she must have blown him at some point. Which goes back to when Missy, uh, there was that whole thing with the UFC guy that they brought in to job for Taz in 97 or 98 ECW and Missy supposedly promised him a blow job, and then after he did it, he came back, and she said, sorry, I don't blow jobbers. So I don't know. I guess her policies changed somewhere along the line. And what's interesting is that John Tatum kind of lost Missy to Eddie Gilbert in the 1987 storyline, but both in real life and in kayfabe at the same time. And this was not in Crockett. This was somewhere else. So he ended up leaving that promotion, and I believe he went back to world class. He bounced USWA, some controversial angles at various points with women getting hit, and global as well. And he eventually retired in 95. He's only 59 years old right now. So he retired at a relatively young age. So this guy, Tatum, not exactly a slave to the wrestling business, which is always good to see. The hosts of NWA Worldwide are Tony Schiavone and David Crockett. Now, when I was watching the Mid-Atlantic TV that is on the WWE Network that actually goes back to March of 1985, Johnny Weaver is the color man, and I thought, uh, he, he's not all that good. I can't wait until Weaver goes away. And then I turn on this, and David Crockett, sometimes I enjoy him, and sometimes I don't. Tony, we have, again, the best hour in wrestling, the fastest hour. Actually, it's still just 60 minutes. It's no faster or slower than before. Although it did have me excited that maybe they were going to play the tape at like one and a half times speed. So they would go in like 40 minutes. Like that, the old silent footage of Babe Ruth uh, after he hits the home run and he's running really, really fast because they have the tape speed all screwed up back in those days. That would actually be kind of fun. Maybe that's a solution for the people who don't like three-hour Raw. Of course, they probably watch it on DVR and just watch it on Fast Forward, something like that. So arm drags and drop kicks for Pez to start, who is a little bit more svelte in 85. You can tell he put on a little bit of weight helping Jimmy Valiant over the next year. 
And as Pez gains control, we get updates from the broadcast crew on the various title changes that have occurred, such as the Koloffs winning the World Tag Team Championship, now invoking the Freebird rule, as I said earlier. Dusty, of course, winning the Tag Team title over Tully, but also Buzz Tyler winning the Mid-Atlantic title for whatever little that's worth at this point, because the territorial titles don't quite mean as much when the whole system is breaking down. A little bit of arm work. And Tony says that Pez is a great athlete, but make sure to say that he's not a black athlete, because that is, as I said, what would trigger Pez later on when he turned on Jimmy Valiant. It was the term black athlete. An elbow by Tatum, and then he locks in a sleeper, but Pez elbows his way out of it. And then over in the corner, Tatum tries to drive Pez's head into the turnbuckle. And we're back now to the racist trope, because it is 1985, of the Pez has a hard head. He didn't do his homework, Jess. One of those deals. And there's no effect. So we get whatever the Pez Watley version of firing up is, which is a reversal of an Irish whip, where Pez doesn't quite do like a tackle. He just sort of awkwardly runs into him. I'm not even sure what to call that. And then goes for an O'Connor roll. That doesn't really work. And then he hits the flying headbutt that kind of looks like the old Tito Santana flying forearm, except there's no forearm involved. He just kind of drives his head into Tatum. And that is what picks up the three count for Pez Watley, who honestly is just sort of a guy in Jim Crockett promotions at this point, sort of in the background, helping Jimmy Valiant over the course of the next year. I don't know where he would rank among athletes in 1985. He's certainly behind Dwight Gooden, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was great at that point. Grant Fuhrer was a great goalie for the Edmonton Oilers around this time. I know, I, I went through the list before, but I think it's important to mention that while Pez may have been highly rated back in those days, I don't think he really compares with those dudes. You know, D- David, it takes a big man to come out here on national television and say somebody else was a better man and not make any excuses about it. But you know, Dusty, a lot of things were weighed in your favor. There was a lot of things on my mind. You had Baby Doll hanging from the ceiling. A lot of publicity about that. No disqualification, this, that, and the other. A lot of mind-boggling stuff, which come out in the past. You are a master of psychology. Tully Blanchard alongside Baby Doll, very subdued after losing the television title to Dusty Rhodes, which I'd be subdued as well if you held the title for as long as him. They're constantly talking about how long he'd held it, how it was the longest reign, which is a good way of building it up to the point where it's really going to be meaningful when he loses. But I do find it strange that when he does lose it, it's not necessarily on TV. (laughs) I mean... What what is the point of calling it the television title? That he wrestles on television regularly? Well, he's not wrestling on this show. I don't I don't understand the logic behind the TV title. Although I remember as a kid wondering why doesn't the WWF have a TV title? And the answer is because they didn't want to throw the same person out there every single week, and you had the Intercontinental title, and that that was probably enough. Tully talks about coast to coast referring to the reach of NWA worldwide. And they were getting on in more places around this time period in terms of expanding out. But he has a bit of an interesting challenge for the time period for Dusty for the rematches. 
But you know, I'm from South Texas, where the mesquite trees and the longhorn cattle and the Santa Gertrudes cattle and the barbed wire marks off the sections of land. That barbed wire that tears people's skin. Well, Dusty Rhodes, you want to come bunkhouse style? I'll come bunkhouse style, but let's add that one flavor. Let's put that barbed wire up around that ring. And then we'll see, once and for all, who's the toughest man in professional wrestling, Dusty Rhodes or Tully Blanchard. Wow, he's hardcore. He's hardcore. Barbed wire matches in 1985. And I thought, well, clearly that must not have happened because Dusty held out and wanted to have a match with a wall around the ring. And we're going to make Jim Crockett pay for it. I know that's not the greatest impersonation in the world, but you get my point. But these barbed wire matches actually did happen. It was a more famous barbed wire ladder match that these two had in 1987. But they had a few of these on the house show circuit in the spring. Tully eventually regains the title in Charlotte on April 28th. But they had non-title matches after that, but still with the barbed wire ring. I I think it's very interesting that they were kind of going to that at this point, probably figuring, well, what the hell? I mean, Dusty's going to blade anyway in the match, so we might as well throw barbed wire around the ring so that he'll bleed from other places as well. Nin delivers, and it's belted! Left field! In the gap! It's in there for a double! Here comes Biggins! Here comes Anderson! The Angels take the lead! Six to Nobody's shedding any more tears about the 2002 San Francisco Giants blowing that World Series to the Anaheim Angels. The the Bob Costas' worst nightmare World Series with two wildcard teams. I think it was the first one of its kind once they put the wildcard in. Both teams won 95 games, so it's not like somebody was there on a fluke like the 2014 World Series where neither team even won 90 games during the season. It was a pretty nice revenge tour for the Giants, because they beat the Braves in the division series, revenge for 1993, then they beat the Cardinals in the NLCS, revenge for 1987, and they get to, they get a 3-2 lead over the Angels in games, game six, they're up five to nothing in the seventh inning, I think they had a 96% win probability, and when Dusty Baker, who by the way, I think gets way too much grief for you know his time as a manager with many teams because his strength was as a leader of men rather than as in-game strategist. But he made a big mistake here, in my opinion, which is he takes Russ Ortiz out of the game and lets him keep the ball going back to the dugout. Usually you take the ball from the starting pitcher and then just give it to the guy coming out of the bullpen. Apparently the Angels saw that and they didn't care for it. And they rallied for six runs between the seventh and the eighth inning, three runs in each inning. And then win Game Seven. It's just kind of kind of strange. But again, they ended up winning three World Series anyway. The Angels haven't even been back to the World Series since then. So probably for the best for them that they got their win in. And then Disney sold the team to Artie Marino the next year and made a ton of money. And you, you have to feel good for Disney, you know, raking in the cash like that. Right now we have Arn Anderson, very new to Jim Crockett promotion. So I was very interested in viewing the television from this month to kind of see how he was and how different Arn was in the very beginning. He is taking on Steve Casey, who they are billing as the European heavyweight champion. And I was just like, what the hell is this? This dude is from Texas. Like, what, what the hell does he have to do with Europe? 
It's that's even more annoying than when on WWF telecast they constantly refer to Dino Bravo as the former Canadian heavyweight champion as if that actually meant anything to anybody watching the show at that time. But but he's not important. What's important is Arn, who debuted on the March 9th episode, so two weeks before this, as a bit of a loner character, which is interesting because you associate him so much with the Four Horsemen and in tag teams later on. So it's presented as something different, and also as a cousin of the Anderson family, because Oli isn't there. He's still working in Georgia, and it's still a separate entity for now, but eventually they join up within a month, and Oli, as I understand it, as I remember it, I thought was kind of a baby face down there, but it doesn't matter because he's in a different territory and you can just bring him in as whatever you want. So Arn is just sort of a generic tough guy, except for the fact that Arn Anderson, there ain't nothing generic, I don't think, about him. But that's something that we would come to find out over the next several years. One thing that kind of kept me on the edge of my seat watching these Arn Anderson matches from this time period was... Are we going to see the first Arn Anderson Spinebuster in Jim Crockett Promotions in this match? So I was really paying close attention, like waiting, waiting, hoping that we'd see it. Because, again, this is so early on, you don't really see him necessarily doing the same sort of stuff. Tony and David, they speculate on whether Arn and Ole actually get along. As you know, cousins can certainly bicker with each other and... They, they speculate whether Arn saying that Oli is coming and all that, it means that they would actually be teaming together or whatever it means. So Casey starts out working headlock spot and a front chancery. There's a lot of mat work from Arn in these early matches from him. A single leg takedown from Steve Casey, the alleged European champion. And Casey gets tossed off, and then there's a shoulder block, and a very funny sell by Arn. I, I probably should remember to go back and make a gif of this, where he kind of has like a minor convulsion, just sort of sitting on his butt on the mat. And he fights back with an inverted atomic drop, Arn does. Slam, puts the boots to him, and a backdrop for a two-count. Locks in a chin lock, and it is reversed out into a hammer lock slash arm bar by Steve Casey. I'm, I'm looking at Arn again, and he looks exactly the same. Like, if you CGI'd footage from 1985, uh, uh, that version of Arn Anderson, into, say, I don't know, 1996, you'd be very hard-pressed to tell much of a difference, other than the fact that Arn, in a lot of his early matches, was wearing these light blue trunks that he would really sort of phase out by the time the 90s come along. There's no clean break by Arn Anderson along the ropes, so back elbow off an Irish whip, a foot to the throat, because now he just totally means business. A gut buster where he gets him up, drops him on his, his stomach over the knee, and Arn ends up going for multiple pins, and none of them are successful. Casey eventually just bridges up out of it, because Arn is doing that thing where he's just trying to hold down his arms for the cover. And a European uppercut, and Casey starts firing up with a drop kick and a leg drop, and follows that up with an Irish whip, but he puts his head down, a cardinal mistake for a ring veteran who is allegedly the European heavyweight champion, and Arn drops an elbow to the back of Casey's head, and quickly sets up for the gourd buster, the 
mostly used finisher of Arn during this time period, which is basically a front suplex type move. And that is how Arn picks up the victory. One, two, three in this one over Steve Casey. It's interesting because the front suplex, I know that more as the one-man gangs finisher around that 1987 time period in the WWF. And he was called the 747. So I'm going to call Arn Anderson the 737. You know, a very valuable commodity kind of fits in any segment. I don't know if you know, but Southwest Airlines, every single one of their planes is a 737 because it's reliable, it's durable, you know, they're perfectly comfortable enough to fly in. That's what Arn Anderson is. He's a Boeing 737. And this one, I think, ran a little bit too long. And yeah, I guess you're, you're pumping up Steve Casey as something more than one of the regular enhancement guys, but, oh boy, I'm glad this long enhancement match didn't bury him for good. Imagine the internet reacting to Arn Anderson in a seven-minute match against Steve Casey early in his run. Of course, they probably didn't even, wouldn't have even known what they had in Arn at this time, because like I said, he's being presented as something completely different than what he would eventually become. As sort of a henchman, a very important cog in a group and he comes in and he's basically like white bad news brown sort of maybe i was a little hard on the internet there i don't know but it didn't really exist in that form in 1985 you know outside of a few nerds or whatever but now you can use the internet for good stuff like going to check out prowrestlingonly.com and exploring other podcasts match reviews features and retrospectives reviews of wrestling books video games Matches, playlists, wrestler appearances in non-wrestling TV shows, and movies, and more. Join the conversation by signing up at the Pro Wrestling Only Forums. Online for over a decade with over 2,000 registered members and an archive of a hell of a lot of threads. Message Board is a vibrant community. Whether you want to talk about a specific match in the Match Discussion Archive, take a deep dive in the Microscope Forum, or discuss more general topics from wrestling's past and present. Check all of that out and more at ProWrestlingOnly.com. And now the word comes across the big challenge. Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair, they want to challenge us to a war. You want a war? While early Arn Anderson is different, what's a little bit more strange is seeing Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes together in 1985. Because you get this odd scramble match that's coming up on March 30th at the Greensboro Coliseum with Tully Blanchard and Wahoo McDaniel teaming to take on Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes. It's because you're between the two Starcade matches that Flair and Dusty had. And Wahoo has the world title with him. He's holding the NWA world title. So I make sure to get a screen cap of that because I always like when guys are holding titles that they never actually held. Like Mr. Perfect holding up the world tag team title because they didn't have the IC title from when he won it in that tournament in 1990. But this is kind of the end of that period where Ric Flair is the traveling world champion, kind of dropping into various territories, which kind of made him a babyface in Crockett only because when he would show up in these places like a world-class, like a Mid-South, he would be the heel because he'd be taking on the local hero, and then usually he'd get something like help from the local heel, a la... The end of 85, Dick Murdoch pile-driving Ted DiBiase, and that compromises Ted and his match, and all that sort of stuff. By the time 86 rolls around, you kind of see 
flare only in the Crockett territory. Next, we have the Kolovs and Crusher Khrushchev, who are coming to Roanoke on March 24th. And in these promos, the JCP show, I can't remember if they did this on Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, but on all the worldwide shows that I'm watching, they, they have this annoying graphic on the screen where it says, you know, Roanoke, blah, 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 3 p.m., go here for tickets. But the Sunday 3 p.m. part would be flashing on and off the screen. It's very annoying, and it kind of hurt my eyes. So I'm just going to have to close my eyes and listen to these dudes talk. This was actually changed from the original bout, which was going to be Ivan and Nikita Koloff defending the tag team titles against the former champions Dusty Rhodes and Manny Fernandez. However... They've all kind of moved on to different things. Dusty winning the TV title, Manny Fernandez teaming up with other people or working singles matches. So Dusty ended up facing Tully in Roanoke. And it was Don Kernodal teaming with Manny Fernandez against Nikita Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev. So you're going to use that combination. And Ivan was also in action. He was taking on Magnum T.A. You're a very foolish man, Magnum T.A., to sign a contract against Ivan Koloff in this Roanoke, Virginia. Tomorrow at 3 p.m., you're going to find out, like all the American people, why the Koloffs are world tag team champions. Because we are the greatest athlete in the world. Tomorrow, you're going to find out at your expense. Can you imagine how you're going to feel, Magnum T.A., after match is over? You're going to be laying there hurt, and all the girls are going to be around you crying. Oh, Magnum, poor Magnum T.A., but it's going to be too late for you, American, too late. I don't know. To my mind, and I haven't probably watched every single one of them, but I can say with a reasonable degree of certainty that Ivan Koloff was the best Soviet Russian during the Cold War era in all of wrestling. Yeah, I certainly rank him above Nikita because I can actually understand what the hell he's saying. I rank him above Crusher Khrushchev. I rank him above Nikolai Volkov because Volkov in the ring wasn't all that dynamic. And Ivan could, you could just get a lot more things out of Ivan, even though he's a little bit older at this time. And his career pretty much wound down at the same time that the Cold War did. So it was very good timing with Ivan. They actually come back for a promo. Two segments from now, and I'm going to skip to that because I'll, I'll cycle back because we get a lengthy Dusty Rhodes promo that's like four minutes that's going to require some time. And they assert their right. They also hold the six-man titles in addition to the tag team titles. So I guess we're now on that kick where you can hold two titles at the same time. And David Crockett is very confused, which is no surprise. So Ivan explains the free bird rule to him without saying free bird rule. And for whatever reason, Ivan says his piece, but since he's gotten to talk for about a minute and a half, two minutes on this show, we've got to let Nikita talk and God help us all. See, I play Nikita Koloff promos backwards for two reasons. Number one, it makes just as much sense playing it backwards as forwards because you can't really understand what the hell he's saying either way. And two, there could be a hidden message that he's throwing in there that I just can't hear. But he did not say that Paul is dead, so there's really nothing there. 
So we're going to bounce back to the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, who is with his newly won NWA television title, which would be renamed the World Television Title during this brief reign of a month and a half to kind of give it even more prestige. Although, honestly, the prestige is there based on who has the belt. Tully Blanchard, this great heel, or Dusty Rhodes, a former world champion in his own right, just kind of renamed, I think, for vanity purposes. But speaking of vanity, Dusty with a pretty sweet-looking black satin jacket, because this is 1985, and that is how you look cool on wrestling television. And the jacket says Dusty Rhodes on it, and I can imagine him going in a la Homer Simpson, where like, now, sir, you, your initials, you have D-R... No, Dada, I want you to spell it in cursive writer, D-U-S-T-Y... R-H-O-D-E-S, Dusty Rhodes. Sir, traditionally a monogram is just initials. I wanted to spell out my whole name because I am the American dream. But it is actually kind of a cool jacket. And he's got a lot of thoughts about that match with Tully where Baby Doll was suspended in the shark cage above the ring. Wahoo's interference and all the stuff that's going on. So let's break it down. Traveling all over this country and being able to say that Baby Doll and Tully Blanchard are no longer the NWA television champion is a big thrill. I mean, we took it to the limit. I mean, Baby Doll, she went up high in this cage. It was a good thing she didn't have a dress on. So, oh Lord, I just don't want to even think about what would have been going on. All right, we're off to an interesting start here with talking about potentially being able to look up Baby Doll's dress that she didn't actually wear. So let's see where this goes. But I got to say one thing, and one thing is for sure. Right now, I'm holding what was belonged to Tully Blanchard, and there's no way in the world he ever going to get it back. Ever going to get it back. For six weeks. You know, it reminds me of that Simpsons, like, you're banned from this historical society. You and your children and your children's children for three months. Every man, woman, child sitting out there, every race, creed, and color travels all over this country knows one thing, that Dusty Rose, the American dream, when it came down to it, even though my mama got mad at me, I just slapped her face when it got time. Two weeks ago on Worldwide, Dusty had slapped Baby Doll in the ring and now he's kind of on a little bit of an apology tour where he's asking for forgiveness for the fans who are cheering uproariously because they hate baby doll that much although perhaps they understand that you know nowadays you're seeing nia jackson there with the intergender stuff from the royal rumble and all that well baby doll was kind of like the nia jacks of the women back then in that she was about one and a half times bigger than all the other i'm not casting aspersions on her or saying that as a pejorative i'm just saying that she was a bigger woman than say like sunshine or precious was in world class so dusty asking forgiveness of the fans trying to reel it back in because objectively it's not the greatest look in the world even though it's something that in 1985 was considered okay because it's the face slapping the female heel Dusty kind of narrates what happened with Ric Flair coming in to help him and sort of what I played in the intro at the very top of the show. It's just so bizarre, but it does set up later on in 1985 when they're in the cage and the thought is, well, maybe you'd help Dusty Rhodes like as Flair did earlier in the year and instead they bust up his leg, leads to the Hard Times promo, Starcade 85, all that legendary stuff. 
Like I said, I want to ask all the ladies out there, and I want all the ladies just to listen to this. I know I was wrong when I slapped baby down. I know that. No, 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 no. But I want to ask you, am I forgiven? I mean, I want to hear, am I forgiven? Yeah, I know it. Lord bless my soul, my mama said. You know what? Be good to your mama, because you only got one. And love your daddy. Thank you, Dusty. The more you know. You know, you get the Hard Times promo as the example of great Dusty as a talker. But for God's sake, I, I love watching him week to week Dusty, where it's just this random stuff. Especially early on before it becomes really self-indulgent after the middle of 87, when I said that JCP had really started to fall off. This is the stuff that I really enjoy the most about doing this show. The seven seconds. Wyatt putting the move on Christie. I play these sports clips in part to tell stories, but also to give sort of public service announcements about certain things. Recently, you had a bad call or a bad non-call, in this case, go against the New Orleans Saints. And it was pretty obvious that it was both pass interference and helmet-to-helmet contact may have kept the Saints out of the Super Bowl, but there were other things that happened in that game. But you guys won Super Bowl forty-four over the Colts in thrilling fashion. The New Orleans Saints did. And you have that to hang your hat on. If you're a Sacramento Kings fan, you don't have a whole lot to hang your hat on because the best chance that you had, your team was the victim of a systematic screwing by the NBA in the 2002 Western Conference Finals. Not just a Game 4 buzzer beater with Robert Ory where Vladi Divac mysteriously bats the ball right to Robert Ory at the top of the key, but Game 6... In the fourth quarter, where if you just watch the YouTube of it, as I did the other day, and see how obvious fouls by the Lakers, you know, such as Kobe Bryant shoving a guy to the ground, goes uncalled, and ticky-tack, every manner of it gets called against the Kings. It's just a parade to the free-throw line for the Lakers. Same sort of thing happened in Game 7 to less egregious effect. But, my God, yeah, they did everything they could to avoid having a Sacramento versus New Jersey NBA Finals. So next time I'm mad, you know, because I feel like my team was screwed over, and it's also my advice to you, is say, well, I could be a Sacramento Kings fan because they don't have anything to hang their hat on. At least, you know, as a Bruins fan, I have the 2011 Stanley Cup. And speaking of underhanded ways of winning a championship, we have the Koloffs along with Crusher Khrushchev in our next match. They just won the tag team title, as I mentioned earlier, and they're are also in possession of the six-man titles, which always seem to go in and out in Jim Crockett promotions. It came back for a bit in 1991, but it was never really made a priority, probably because you don't have anything like the Von Erichs and the Freebirds, which would be the only reason why you would want to have a six-man title in the first place. Remember back in 2014, they suggested maybe WWE should do that. It's like, yeah, and then once the Shield versus the Wyatts and then Evolution, once that whole thing ends, then what the hell is the point of the six-man titles? Because then nobody's really going to care about it. They are taking on Sam Houston and Gene Ligon. We've seen Gene Ligon greeting Smallentown before, and Sam Houston probably as well. I've 
said that I never really thought much of him. I thought he was too much of a lightweight. He debuted in 83, so he's still sort of breaking in. He's not getting a lot of wins. He's certainly at that Coco Beware level as the light guy who gets beat on TV. Ivan and Nikita are going to be the team in this one, so Crusher Khrushchev will be standing guard at ringside. An interesting thing about Barry Darsow as Crusher Khrushchev, he was on two different three-man tag teams that invoked the Freebird rule as champions. Because, of course, years later, he would be part of Demolition, and it would be Axe, Smash, and Crush. And he was kind of the joining part of that because it was Axe who was being phased out as Crush was coming in. Now, as we get started here, I hope you're sitting down because David Crockett says something that's a little weird. Ladies and gentlemen, you fans out there, there's only one reason there's so much hate in the world. That's not the reason. That's not the reason because that's why there's so much pride in the world. The United States. Those three men over there now. The Russians. Ivan Koloff, Nikita Koloff, and Crusher Khrushchev. Ah, I see that David is taking the scenic route to making his point that, okay, Russians are evil. Great, great. We'll, we'll investigate whether they interfered in the election. That's wonderful. So Sam Houston gets a little bit of offense in on Uncle Ivan, who starts. But in the corner, Ivan gets knees up, and Houston ends up running into it. So he lays on a chokehold before tagging out to good old nutsack Nikita. So named because his nutsack came out of his singlet at Starcade 86. How come that nickname never caught on? Can you imagine, if you will, and I know that this is 86 and we're in March of 85, but Nikita Koloff, like that happening in the era of Twitter where his nutsack pops out in the middle of a pay-per-view main event match. And then Tommy Young has to, like, tuck it back in or whatever it was. I haven't watched Starkid 86 in a while because I, no I have no real desire to see Nikita Koloff's nutsack again. But Tony and David argue about how they're switching around the three guys. They're like, yes, that's the point. They've seen the Texas territory, and they know how it works. Press slam by Nikita. So we're actually going to see the power moves from him. Then he does a little bit of a King of the Mountain spot. Showing Vince that he's ready for the New York Territory, even though he would never go there. It was rumored that he might be a Hogan opponent for WrestleMania 2, which would have made a lot of sense, considering that that Bundy angle was put together pretty late. Houston fights back because he's coming back into the ring, and he does that thing where, you know, shot to the gut, so Nikita is hunched over. Sunset flip, which Nikita completely no-sells. He completely Fs it up and just kind of, gets back on his feet, which, I don't know, doing a sunset flip against a guy, I could see it against Ivan, but not so much against Nikita because of the way he was being presented. He tags out, Ivan misses an elbow, and Houston tags to Gene Legon. So I think, okay, well, this is going to end soon, and Legon is clearly eating the pin because Sam Houston is the name that more people know. Legon, more of a pure jobber, but and a backdrop by good old Gene, but then he puts his head down, a cardinal mistake for a ring veteran, and Ivan snap mares him towards the corner, and I'm shocked, because now this means Houston is tagged back into the match, and old nutsack Nikita with a big slam and gets him up into a bear hug, and Ivan comes off the top rope with a clothesline, so sort of like the doomsday device, but you're not flipping the guy over and putting him at risk, and that is what picks up the one, two, three for the Russians. 
And I would like to once again reiterate my point about Ivan Koloff being the best Soviet Cold War era wrestler ever, like within that gimmick. I mean, this is the guy who beat Bruno in 1971, who they put in that position to go over Bruno in MSG in that famous match, January of 71. It just, I'm left scratching my head. Something happened with Ivan Koloff in the WWF, where he abruptly leaves at the end of 1983, which seems to me like bad timing, because when you really think about it, and Hogan had a variety of opponents after winning the title in 84, sort of doing that fighting champion thing with Schultz and Orndorff and a whole host of other guys, mass superstar, don't you think that Ivan Koloff would have fit in that role pretty well, I think, as a Hogan opponent? Maybe they thought he looked too old or whatever, but... I think Hogan against the dastardly Soviet Russian, who you could portray as a former champion, I feel like that was a natural fit. But for some reason, something happened. I'm not entirely sure what it was. Ah! Oh, mercy! The boogeyman and his old lady is happy today, baby! You know, the old lady, this is my main old lady now, my main old lady, she's never away from my side. I eat with her, I sleep with her, and I take her for a long ride every single night. I said it before that I don't quite get the Jimmy Valiant thing, but that doesn't mean that I can't enjoy the hell out of this. It's something that certainly, years ago as, say, a late teenager or in my early 20s that I would have just hated this because it was too silly and hokey. Now I just live for this shit in my wrestling when I'm watching it. I'm very excited when this this odd-looking man comes out with his... Well, he doesn't really have the beard right now, but with, like, the wild, crazed hair, and who kind of talks like Dusty Rhodes dropped a bunch of acid or something like that. He's got a whomping stick, and I don't know if that's what he's referring to or if he's referring to, you know, Big Mama or whoever. You don't really see her until 86. So he's got this big stick that says Jones on it, and it's not Virgil's penis. That's the other famous big stick that belongs to a Jones. This one, it's just a big whomping stick that says Jones on one side and Paul on the other, which I'm assuming that Jimmy Valiant made for himself, or perhaps a fan sent it in to him. Who, who really knows? But I think he probably put this together himself because he seems to be very proud. And he says that he put Paul Jones in the hospital, not a medical facility, because this is a different era. You can just and who who cares about heels in the hospital? So he, we see the footage of him beating up Paul Jones in this never-ending war where I've kind of dipped my toe in at various points. Obviously, 1986 is when guys start losing their hair, so it's a lot of fun. But he had to leave the territory for a while and do the whole Charlie Brown from out of town bit and just kind of lay low for a little bit. But Jimmy, I think deep down he may understand that some of us up in the north may not quite get or smell what he's cooking in more modern parlance. But he has figured out the way to my heart, which is to start making baseball analogies with his the stick that he has as his bat. You know about baseball. All the people know about my baseball. Well, I'm going to tell you something. In baseball, you get three balls thrown at you, and you see if you can hit them. Well, the first ball I want thrown at the boogeyman is kabuki. And when I get kabuki like this, Jack, I'll wow. 
It's a home run, you understand? Watch it, David. I ain't gonna hit you in a little backlash. And the second ball I want is the Barbarian. And I'm gonna hit him over the fence. And the third ball is gonna be Superstar. Superstar Billy. And then you know what it is? Three strikes and you're out. You're all out, Jackass. As was the style at the time, I think he's looking to swing for power but is also very concerned about making contact at the same time. And guys didn't want to strike out as much then. You didn't really see a lot of that type of player. You had a Dave Kingman striking out 175 times a year, Reggie Jackson. But outside of that, it was still kind of a shame to strike out. So he wants to make sure that he makes contact with Paul Jones's head or torso or whatever. But good job by him. And that's my advice to any professional wrestler out there. If you want to get over with me, just start making baseball references because that's always going to work. But up next, we have a kind of new tag team since one of them was half of the tag team champions just a week before this with a different guy. The original Mustache Mountain of Magnum TA and Manny Fernandez, the Raging Bull, who, of course, tagging with the American Dream Dusty Rose. They are taking on the Rock and Roll RPMs, which totally sounds like one of those Rock and Roll Express rockers ripoffs. And they were a well-traveled team through the American South and also into Puerto Rico. But they are the answer to a great wrestling trivia question, which, honestly, if I had known about this, I would have put this into the questions I was writing for the Place to Be Nation's 500th episode trivia contest. And the question is, who did Mick Foley team with in his first pay-per-view appearance? And it was the Rock and Roll RPMs on Super Clash 3 in the AWA in a six-man match. So just mark that one down because you'll probably hear that in the next trivia contest where I have to write questions. Manny ate the pin to Crusher Khrushchev in that tag team match where they lost the titles. Although the controversy there is that it was Ivan and Nikita versus Dusty and Manny. So the guy who wasn't in the match actually scored the pin, probably concealing himself as Nikita even though they they don't really look alike other than having bald heads. And Nikita is more built, although Barry Darso is always kind of sneaky strong. I mean, you remember at SummerSlam 89, he slams Akeem and the Big Boss Man in succession. And Manny is now, he's kind of transitioning into a feud with Arn Anderson, who called Manny a half-breed at one point. And I don't don't care for that kind of talk. Obviously, 1985 is a little bit of a different time. I mean, I've heard the term, actually, I, sh- I should just quickly tell this story, where when Jerome McGinley was playing for Pittsburgh in the 2013 playoffs, somebody in the section next to me called him a half-breed or referred to him as such, and every single Bruins fan around him basically told him to shut the F up and basically chastise the hell out of him. And I was very proud of the fandom at that moment. See, last week I was talking about a time when I was really ashamed. I was really proud about how we stood up to the one imbecile, who, by the way, had a nickname in our circles as Fat Kessel because he wore a Kessel jersey and was fat. We don't really think about it too much. So the RPMs are Tommy Lane and Mike Davis. I don't don't know why that matters, but I actually had to look that up. I don't know who these guys are, but they go by the names LP and DJ, which seems strange because it's not either one of their initials, but, you know, an LP album and a DJ. Ha, ha, ha. So it's LP who starts, 
and he's caught by Magnum TA with a couple of slams, and you can see that he is being built up as the next one, so to speak. Maybe not to supplant Dusty, but clearly they knew that they had something special with him, and that's why he wins the United States title on this very day, March 23rd, 85, against Wahoo. And they talk on commentary, Tony and David, about Magnum's temperament and how he gets mad, but he uses it to his benefit rather than letting it do things that would, say, get him disqualified. He has a temper that is second to none, but he can control that temper enough he can to use it to his advantage oh, on the match. Yes, yes, to use it. <laughs> I mean, he gets mad and... You know, David, in a second. Yeah, you talk so many times on this program about being out of control. Even when he's at his maddest, he is really never out of control. You can tell that David had no idea where Tony was going with that comment because he thought he was going to say that the temper was a detriment to him and then he had to kind of stop on a dime. David Crockett, not the best at improv. I don't think any episodes of uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway with David Crockett would go particularly well. I don't think you'll be seeing him in sheer madness at your local theater. All right. It would be funny, though, if, if he went into that career after uh, leaving the wrestling business. And Magnum, is he's absorbing no offense from DJ. So he tags out to Manny. He gets caught in the corner, but then chops his way out. And he mule kicks the dude who's standing on the apron, which was kind of funny. Go to a side headlock, because I, I don't know if they needed to organize the next couple of minutes of this match. But you can see that they're clearly calling spots at this point. A couple of leapfrogs by Manny. You don't think of him as a leapfrog guy, but he can get up and down. And a back elbow tags out to Magnum, who comes in off the second rope with a shot to the left arm. Then tag to Manny, who does the exact same thing. And then Magnum is in again. They are cutting off the ring very effectively. Not bad for a makeshift team that pretty much is just being thrown together on TV to get both of those guys out there. A tackle by Manny. But DJ, they've had enough of this. DJ goes to the eyes finally, and the RPMs get a little bit of control of this match. And down in the corner of the screen, we get the little station identifier for WSET-TV, which is Lynchburg, Virginia. So that is where this tape came from. There's actually two copies out on YouTube. So when I get to YouTube Comment Theater later, I'm going to mix and match from each of them because add them together is probably about five or six worthwhile comments. The only thing notable about that station in Lynchburg is that is where the longtime host of Good Morning America, Charles Gibson, got his start in television. So the RPMs, they are slowing the match down with a chin lock, and you're kind of wondering, why why the hell isn't this match over with? Why can't Magnum get in there? But he finally does, and he's a very good House of Fire guy. He's obviously a tag team champion in Mid-South, which I covered in Episode 80, when he was kind of in that teacher-student duo with Mr. Wrestling 2 that went bad on them in early 1984. And all four guys are in the ring, and both of them score an Irish whip, Manny and Magnum. And Magnum hits the belly-to-belly, which picks up the win for Mustache Mountain, the (laughs) proto-version of that. And this went way longer than you think it would. You think of Magnum TA matches, a lot of them would just be 20 or 30 seconds on TV, especially... As you get more into 86, where he's just going to go in there, do the belly-to-belly, and get out of there, do a promo. Magnum, always very well protected, because clearly Dusty saw a great deal in him. 
And to be honest, I think that trading out Ricky Steamboat and allowing that vacuum to be filled with Magnum TA was the correct move because I think, as it was proved in 1989, you were only going to get so far with Steamboat, and I think the ceiling for Magnum was higher, and unfortunately, the car accident in 1986 just kind of ended all of that. But before they go to commercial, Tony Schiavone does a station salute, which I think they are doing to kind of recognize the maybe some of the newer stations that are picking up the NWA and Jim Crockett Promotions and all that programming. WPWR in Chicago, which is actually the transmitter is in Gary, Indiana, is channel 51 and is now the CW affiliate. Actually, the transmitter now, it's not, the station is based in Gary, Indiana, but the transmitter is actually on the Willis Tower, which used to be known as the Sears Tower, but if you're going to call it the Willis Tower, I'm going to call it the Wesley Willis Tower because he's one of Chicago's all-time greats. To be able to run that to run that fast. First down from the 42. Blitz. Lost the football. It's on the ground. Covered by the Raiders. His college teammate, Charles Woodson, on the blitz. Tom Brady never sees him coming from the front side. We're reviewing the play. The quarterback's arm was going forward. It is an incomplete thing. <laughs> Second and 10 on the 42. Wow. That's a kind of play from back in the day where having the rules expert, which they have on all the telecasts now, like in the booth with those guys to explain what the tuck rule was as odd as the rule ended up being. It would have been helpful instead of like Greg Gumble with his scoffing at the end of it because they applied it correctly for better or worse. I remember I did not see really the first three quarters of that game because naturally, because my whole identity was wrapped up into going to hockey games, I went to see the Vancouver Canucks and the Washington Capitals that night and the Capitals lost 5-1, to one, which, by the way, I didn't even have to look that up. I can actually remember the final score of that freaking game, a Caps team. Oh, my God. Four goal games against Vancouver would come back in my life again at some point, but... Yeah, even even though the Patriots won that game, there were a lot of circumstances where the Raiders could have won. They didn't get a third down late in the game. They had a chance to stop and keep them out of field goal range, which they thought they did because it was a 45-yarder in a blizzard. Well, to use a phrase that my father used to use all the time, well, what can I say? So we go to promos for the upcoming show in Greensboro on March 30th, and this is a real treat. Because it's the year 1985, and Ric Flair is the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, and he's teaming with Dusty Rhodes. Together, here they are, and they're taking on Tully and Wahoo, Tully Blanchard, Wahoo McDaniel. And it's weird to think of those two guys paired together, especially Wahoo, you think of him more as a babyface. But seeing them together, and Dusty kind of taking the dominant talker role, because remember, Rick. Maybe a little deferential, even though he's the world champion, because this is a guy who wanted to be rambling Ricky Rhodes when he was coming up in the business. And you they're in a locker room, so you're not seeing style profile Rick. In fact, it looks like he's <laughs> he's looks like he's wearing pajama pants for some reason, like blue pajama pants, and he's got a towel around his neck, so he looks way more like Ronnie Garvin than he looks like Ric Flair. 
You know, this means a tremendous lot to Dusty Rhodes, the American dream. And standing here next to Ric Flair is the greatest two wrestling professional athletes in this country, in this sport today. And let me tell you something. Why don't we quit messing around while McDaniel and Tully Blanchard put it in a cage, a steel cage, right here, Daddy, and see who the better men are. Let's have a war if you want a war. Right, Ricky? You forget about who the biggest attractions are. That's already established. We want to find out just who the two best men are. The cage is up. You accepted a Wahoo. You accepted a Blanchard. The difference is this time, it's two on two. The dream and I don't get to love each other, but we respect each other. And brother, in the cage, we're going to take Tully Blanchard and Wahoo apart. Woo! The fact that this is Ric Flair standing next to Dusty Rhodes yelling about how he's going to take apart Tully Blanchard makes this the greatest battle bowl match of all time before the concept even existed. Just in retrospect, like, who's on what side here? You you just take those four names, you think, all right, well, clearly it's Dusty and Wahoo against Rick and Tully. But no, no, it wasn't always that way. Ric Flair as a babyface. You know I always enjoy that. I've said that many times. We also have a promo for the Roanoke card on March 24th for the match that ended up being, as I mentioned earlier, there are a few changes to the card, Magnum TA against Ivan Koloff. And Magnum was a pretty cool guy. He's got the Magnum PI vibe going on with the mustache and the name. It was a top 15 show back in 1985. But what I'm interested in here is what he's wearing on his hands for this promo. Because I don't know if he was aware that March 24th, the day of this Roanoke show, is the one-year anniversary of when the Breakfast Club were all together in detention (laughs) And so he's wearing fingerless gloves for this. Nice little tribute to Judd Nelson. You know, tomorrow I have the opportunity of a lifetime. Now, people all know I've been concentrating all my energy on going after Wahoo McDaniels for the United States heavyweight title. But now I've got a chance to go out there for all the people in America and go out there against the senior member of the Russian bear, Ivan Koloff, and take him on head-to-head, nose-to-nose, just him and I. Now, you always talked about Russian superiority, Ivan. You always said how you're so much better. Well, show me tomorrow what you got. Show me how you're so much better, because I'm red, white, and blue through and through, and Magnum TA's coming here tomorrow to show you American superiority. You're going down Magnum TA style. Tomorrow you're mine. Now, that's a fired-up, patriotic baby face you got right there. And I, I'm going to ignore the fact that he said Wahoo McDaniels. It was one slip. He didn't say it twice. But it, when he does say that, it kind of makes him look a little bit more like the Emilio Estevez character than the Judd Nelson one. That song, We Are the World, by USA for Africa, that galaxy of stars that gathered together to create a very self-indulgent anthem to raise funds for Africa, hit number 21 on the American Top 40 its first week, so it really just shot right up there, and it stayed on the charts through the rest of the calendar year, so it, it had some staying power, but what might it have had more staying power and been even more successful had the Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant been invited to sing? I mean, they let Dan Aykroyd sing, for God's sakes. What would have been the harm in letting Jimmy Valiant 
sing along with them other than the fact that maybe people in other areas of the country didn't know who he was and don't really get his whole bit like i said earlier but that's okay i like to see how happy he makes people oh look at me i'm making people happy i'm the magical man from happy land in a gumdrop house at lollipop lane you get that north south divide it makes me think of This past week, CBS This Morning or CBS Sunday Morning, one of those shows that I don't watch, they had this weird story about Waffle House because, of course, there's more of those in Atlanta than in other areas of the country and how it has its own lingo. Like, oh, smothered means this. Like, all right, you know, it's not like you're, (laughs) it's not like you're deciphering the Dead Sea Scrolls or something like that. I don't quite get it. So our feature attraction here is the Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant, taking on superstar Billy Graham in the work rate classic of 1985. I mean, these two guys, both in the WWE Hall of Fame, by hook or by crook, Jimmy Valiant, you don't really think of him as a WWE guy, even though he was one of the Valiant brothers in the tag team, one of the best tag teams of the 70s. They made my top 50 GWWE tag team list for Place to Be Nation. And superstar Billy Graham is a cha- a the longest reigning heel champion that they had for the longest time up through at least the 1990s because he's there for about nine or ten months between Bruno and Backlund and gets you know an undercurrent of popularity as a heel but things are different for him here in 1985 he infamously adopted a karate martial arts gimmick in his 1982 WWF comeback People didn't necessarily recognize him. Thankfully, they didn't say that it was actually Kerry Von Erich and that the Ultimate Warrior had died. You know, one of those situations, although Gorilla Monsoon did declare him dead in a newspaper article and refused to correct the record because Gorilla said it would harm his credibility if he published a correction. So the superstar, not exactly, uh, he was a little bit better here in terms of mobility than in his 1987 WWF comeback that you may have seen some of and I've actually explored because he was in the first episode, his one match comeback in 1986. And here it's, it's not much better. It's maybe one half of 1% better than he was later on. And Graham, to start out, he reaches for Valiant. He ends up getting pulled outside and is choked with the camera cable. So they're making the most of this in terms of making this entertaining because it's kind of a hardcore match early on. I have to admit, though, I've made fun of Jimmy Valiant's pants for being a little high on the waist, but I gotta say I respect that because I have these pair of pajama pants that they just don't come up high enough on my waist for what I like. And when I pull them up, they, they like basically I start showing everything I got in front. So it's just very uncomfortable. And I, I really should think about throwing those away. Sleeper locked in by Valiant. We're, we're wasting no time going to the finish. And Valiant actually releases the hold and shoves Graham into the corner and then reapplies the sleeper. Graham is reaching for the ropes, and he's so close, ever so close, but he can't quite get there. The arm drops down twice, but then he finally reaches the ropes before it drops a third time. And Jimmy starts pounding away on him, three consecutive elbow drops, which is what the Boogie Woogie Man would use to finish guys off in enhancement matches a lot of the time. 
So after those three elbow drops, the Barbarian has run in with the great Kabuki. And we have the DQ. Jimmy Valiant has prevailed over superstar Billy Graham in a very brief match here. So you're wondering, who is going to be in the cavalry coming in to save Jimmy Valiant? Oh, you better believe that Pistol Pez Watley is going to back up his friend, one of the greatest white athletes in America at that time and a few others as well it's so nice that they were on good terms I like to see them getting along I don't want to think about all that ugliness that came later with all the brainwashing and all that business using savant kick the barbarian is using the savant kick on Jimmy Bay now all three men superstar Billy Graham the barbarian Kabuki this, got to pound away on Jimmy Van. This has to be retaliation for what happened to Paul Jones. Look out! Here it goes! Hang on, people! It's Pistol Pez Watley. Mid Atlantic Heavyweight Champion, Everlast Bust Honor. Magnum TA is there. Also the Raging Bull. They all come in as Jimmy the Boogie Woogie Man Bryant wins the match by disqualification because the Barbarian and the Great Kabuki both came in to help out superstar Billy Graham. I mean, did you hear that frigging crowd reacting to the baby faces emptying out of the locker room to save the Boogie Woogie Man? Oh, it's such great stuff. I mean, I can't imagine that I, like I said, I don't. I don't think I would have liked this stuff if I had watched it 20 years ago, but holy crap, did it ever work. It was a nice little subplot, for not like something that was at the main event level, but something that was always going on underneath for a segment of the audience that was just plain entertaining, and it went on for years. Like, they milked this thing from, like, 83 all the way up to about Starcade 86, and then Jimmy Valiant just kind of fades away in JCP in 87, and then in 88, I don't even think he's even on TV anymore at that point. You get beards, getting cut off, hair angles. I mean, what's not to like? Other than the fact that it could have used more fireballs. I think that Paul Jones's army could have used fire a little bit more effectively because if you throw fire at his beard, it might burn it off, and then you don't even have to go through the trouble of cutting it off. A minute and a half. The Patriots have no timeouts left. Wilkins gets it off. Oh, I'll return to that in a second, because th- that's kind of important. But we have one more segment left, and it's in the spirit of the Dusty Rhodes, Telly Blanchard, Ric Flair, Scramble Battle Bowl thing we have going on. Because when you think of J.J. Dillon, you think of him standing next to the Nature Boy. As the leader of the Four Horsemen. However, this time, he is standing next to the Nature Boy, but in the form of Buddy Landell, who is new to Jim Crockett Promotions. A quality talent in from Mid-South, who was working with Butch Reed, both as a partner and as an opponent. But having the same sort of gimmick as Ric Flair, I think, makes it really tough. Yes, that makes them natural rivals, but it also gets you labeled as something of a ripoff. Ric Flair, of course, adopted the name Nature Boy from Buddy Rogers. But it's not like Buddy Rogers was working regularly alongside Flair in the same promotion in the 70s or the 80s or something like that. So it was a little bit different, I think. And I think it hurt Buddy Landell, along with you know his drug issues that he had that plagued him throughout his career. But he was an uber-talented guy. 
And he's with J.J. Dillon. So it's kind of an odd period where you have all of Flair's future best friends opposing him in some way. And Landell is coming in. He's doing the normal bit of, I'm the real nature boy. Meanwhile, on Mid-South television, he's being jobbed out every week because they just keep, keep showing tapes of him losing because he he kind of left them high and dry. I mean, he, he was kind of pushed pretty heavily down there. But the thing you could count on with him is he's always a pretty good promo. They say, why do you call yourself the nature boy? Well, I'll tell you. When you can hit a ball over the ballpark, they call you Babe Ruth. And when you can take a football and throw it the length of the football field, they call you Joe Namath. And when you can get down... And you can make better love than James Bond. They call you the nature boy, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. The girls know what I'm talking about. JJ knows what I'm talking about. I now firmly believe that somebody that I know traveled back in time and went down to JCP and let the guys know that if they mentioned baseball in their promos, that some dude doing what they call a podcast 34 years from now is really going to enjoy it quite a bit. And that's why Landell, despite his odd phrasing, you you hit it out, hit it out the ballpark. I I, I don't know, but he's got J.J. Dillon with him, and there's a little bit of an issue with his promo because he kind of gets what was the 1985 version of fans were out of time. Wow, he's so pretty. You know, they talk about charisma. You talk about what's happening. This man is what happened. You need more time on the show. Sorry, JJ, we gave you seven seconds, okay? That was more than fair for you to get your entire promo in. And to think later on, he would be the guy responsible for timing shows. So I'm sure he looks back at this moment when he was barely able to get a word in because they ran out of time and really took care to make sure that the trains were running on time, so to speak. And that is how they wrap for NWA Worldwide for March 23rd, 1985. And now with no timeouts, I think that the... I think that the Patriots, with this field position, you have to just run the clock out. You have to play for overtime now. I don't think you want to force anything here. You don't want to do anything stupid because you have no timeouts and you're backed up. Before I get more into that, just a few plugs for some friends of the show. Steve Bennett of the Sportscasters in my Adams Division podcast partner. And yes, we will have a podcast on the Royal Rumbles from 1988 through 1998 at some point. We don't want to be hemmed in by some artificial time frame because, you know, the Rumble's gone, it's passed, and life sometimes gets in the way, which I'm sure we'll get into in our opening segment. He has Ed Sherman on. I'll be talking about Tony Romo's performance as a broadcaster. I particularly enjoy his work, except sometimes he needs to use decaf instead of, you know, the double caffeine thing that he drinks at times. And Bob Letterer, who had a book out now about the 1968 New York Jets, focusing on the Jets who are not Joe Namath, like, oh, I don't know, Matt Snell, who should have been Super Bowl MVP in that game because he rushed for, I think, 120 or 130 yards on 30 carries. You know, kind of helped keep the ball out of the Colts' hands. That's why you hold them to seven points. I don't know, just a thought. On the Our Vantage Point podcast, they their downfall series continues, talking about managers and how you just don't see those guys around anymore. And on the wrestling podcast about nothing with Mike Crockett and Ring of Honor's truly own Brian Malonis talking about phase two. And I was curious because I, I thought that they were moving down to Del Boca Vista, the, the uh, 
phase two or whatever it was on Seinfeld. But actually, sincere congratulations to Brian Malonis for signing a contract with Ring of Honor. First contract that he has had in his 17-year wrestling career. I'm very happy for him. And I look forward to great things from the bouncers going forward. And I certainly hope that they are on that MSG show because, I don't know, I think it's 50-50 that I'm going to go to that one. Since it's at the Garden, it does seem pretty centered. You know, I I don't know of a better way to put it. I I don't like how WrestleMania Access is in Brooklyn Pier 19 or whatever the hell it is. By the way, that's Red Hook, New York. So I'm I'm just going to float it out there. I'm going to be like one of those bullshit podcasts like, oh, yeah, uh, blah, blah, blah is talking with AEW. I'm going to say because WrestleMania Access is in... (laughs) Red Hook, New York, confirmed Taz for WWE Hall of Fame this year. And now I kind of like what the Patriots are doing. Oh, shit, the Madden Cruiser has put it in reverse. Oh, my God, I forgot. I didn't do YouTube comment theater. All right, let me fire up a really quick YouTube comment theater. This is, of course, actual YouTube comments from real YouTube users, presumably. I actually recognize some of the names because you get a lot of repeat customers in the stuff that I covered. Rufus Leakin says, Tatum's facial expressions make him look like an orangutan. Now, I didn't pick that up from <laughs> the video because, I don't know, maybe he maybe he's blessed by the fact that this is not in high definition. Donnie Brook says, using the Midnight Express music as the show's intro. Hmm... That was really just a coincidence, because like I said, the Midnights weren't here for another three months. TGCTS says, who threw that dropkick on Dusty after the match? Because it wasn't Telly or or Wahoo. It's like they edited whoever it was out of the angle. I don't know. There's no mention of any of that, and I couldn't tell who it was. I'm kind of just assuming that maybe it was Telly, and they just didn't see it correctly. Old School Wrestling says, thanks for the videos, by the way, but do you not have the episodes after this week or not yet? And in fact, there are episodes after this week. In fact, I have the March 30th edition in my queue as well. I had to decide between that one and this one. Firox965 says, regarding that opening theme, wasn't Disco Dead in 85? Yeah, it was. Studio 54 lived for another year. But, you know, I think that they had a nice little vibe that they were going for there. And they had Dusty kind of with, like, one arm in the air, like he was Travolta on the Saturday Night Fever cover. <laughs> Whatever. I, I, I always kind of enjoy that, listening to that theme. And then in Bizarro comments, Monica Lundy says, I have no idea what the hell this means. Daylight saving time begins Sunday, March 11, 2018 at 2 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> Remind you to set your clock. In, an, in one hour before your bed is spring forward. That's actually what it says. Monica Lundy also said St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 2018. All right. That's all the comment says. Monica Lundy says spring begins March 20th, 2018. I love the people who just go on to YouTube and just state facts like the sun rises in the east. <laughs> it's so great. And that's YouTube comment then. Here's Brady again. Up the middle, caught, and it's Troy Brown, and he gets out of bounds, and they might be in Vinatieri's range with 21 seconds left. This this is amazing. This is, is something, and, and I'll admit that as a, as a coach and as an analyst, I don't think they should have done, but they had the guts. They have a young quarterback, and they did it. They were backed up. They were inside their own 20. They had no timeouts left. 
and they're calling these plays and and not only calling these plays but making these plays at some point when you're in the Super Bowl you have to let it all hang out and I'll say this Charlie Weiss and this and this and, and this Patriot team they are letting it all hang out I don't like the phrase let it all hang out associated with Charlie Weiss I mean if you've ever seen what he looks like you'll know exactly what I mean but yeah, I rather enjoyed that Troy Brown catch going across the field because like my heart pretty much stopped when it happened. Johnny Paxton will snap from the far hash mark, angle to the left for Adam Vinatieri, 48-yard field goal attempt. Set to go, snap, ball down, kick up, kick is on the way, and it is good! It's good! It's good! Adam Vinatieri booms a 48-yard field goal, and the game is over, and the Patriots are Super Bowl! By the way, that gets a special exemption from my radio color guy making noise in the background because, number one, it was after the play, and also Gino Capaletti had been in the Patriots organization since 1960 as a player from 1960 to 1970 and then pretty much as a broadcaster since then. I remember exactly what I was doing when that happened. Because don't forget, the Rams scored two touchdowns in that fourth quarter. But another weird thing about that Super Bowl, that not quite as weird as a final score of 13-3, to but both teams had used all their timeouts before the last five minutes of the game. So neither team had any timeouts. So the great thing about that field goal was you, you weren't going to have like a BS timeout by the Rams to ice the kicker or any of that sort of stuff. So I get up off the couch, and I'm kind of in like a catcher crouch position, watching it and as the kick goes up I put my arms over my head and then I basically did a flare flop onto my face on the carpet I I remember that so well and then I just kind of like rolled over and you know threw my hands up in the air because I'd never seen a Boston team win a championship since 1986 and I barely remembered the 1986 Celtics which held I continue to hold in such high regard because I consider it the greatest NBA team of all time 50 and one at home including the playoffs Hall of Famers four Hall of Famers in their front court alone so if that that tells you anything and then there's Dennis Johnson in the backcourt but what an incredible like in the moment in terms of actually winning the championship that was the most thrilling out of any team that I've ever cheered for. Because when the, the 2004 Red Sox was very anticlimactic when they beat the Cardinals. It was you know the last game of a four-game sweep. When the Bruins beat Vancouver in Game Seven, it was a four-nothing game. It's not like somebody scored sudden death overtime. It's not like Bobby Orr flying through the air. Although that was to cap off a sweep as well. It's just that that goal was so iconic. But. I know that there's a lot of haters for the Patriots out there, and I'm very sorry that you feel that way, but I just got one message for you. Whether you like it or not, learn to love it, because it's the best thing going today. That feels like an appropriate way to wrap up this show. Please spread the word about Greetings from Allentown on social media. Give a five-star review on iTunes, Apple Music. That's a very easy way to do things. Tell a friend. That that also works as well. I, I certainly appreciate that. Somebody asks if, oh, do you know anybody who's ever reviewed an episode on that? Well, I've probably covered it. Unless, of course, it's world-class, in which case you'd point them to the WorldCast podcast. Also on the Pro Wrestling Only feed.
as for next week's show, I haven't quite nailed it down yet, but I'm thinking about doing an AWA show from January of 1984 when things were very much in flux for them as well. So feel free to try and talk me out of doing that one. But it has been a while since I've done an AWA show, and I'd kind of like to go back to a definite turning point for them because there's somebody on the show who had already left the promotion, (laughs) which is always a little bit awkward. So once again, thank you so much for listening, and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Greetings, Rob Allentown. American dream, yeah. this wrecking ball, how you say all around? Those are balls. <laughs>